0: Welcome to the Sales Compensation Show, where we share the latest sales performance research, insights, and solutions through in-depth discussions with industry experts. So put that spreadsheet away, grab a beverage, and enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Justin Lane. I've always said people are just gonna do what they're good at or what's easy. And the pay is disconnected, as opposed to being a driver of behavior. And yeah, I th- I've seen survey data. There was a company, I wanna say it was CSO Insights, or it might have been the CEB, but they did a survey one time, and, and it was somewhere in the low 30s. Let's say 33% of reps raised their hands and said, I don't understand how I'm supposed to get paid. And that was just fascinating to me when I saw that. I'm like, you know, what's one of those statistics where you're like, that can't be true. And then, as you talk to, and then as you talk to people, and you talk certainly to comp admin teams that field disputes throughout the year, they're like, oh, that's true. You know, people are asking or have a misunderstanding of how they're actually getting paid. Like you said, into Q3, you know, the plan year, they still don't get it. Let's, let's jump back a little bit. So you made this point where you feel like maybe companies, like the process of comp plan design hasn't really changed a lot in maybe 40 years. And so you started a software company to address this problem. Like what? What was that? Talk me through the thought process.
1: It's interesting because you see things early in your career, and you you know sometimes you you you, you see things they don't make sense, but you think this is kind of the status quo, and you're, you're waiting to learn more. And so I you know I remember even some of my first projects that I did when I was at ZS, where you know first and foremost the people that are designing the plan, like the tools, the people, the teams involved in the design process are not the same as the tools and the people and the teams involved in the execution process. It's like slight bus- overlap, yeah. Yeah. Feels but like they're system. completely disconnected. Yeah, it's completely disconnected. And so we would do this design process, and I remember being in a meeting where, you know, we're about to roll out a plan to the ops and comp team as a part of our strategy, and someone puts up their hand and says, we can't actually calculate that plan because that metric doesn't exist. It's going to take us over six months to bring it in. This is, a, that, I mean, again, you're early in your career, you hear these things and you're like, well, I don't know, maybe this is the way the business operates, but it didn't feel right. And it felt wrong that we were, you know, why were we stuck in this old process? And then you see it time and time again, it's happening in every business. At first, maybe it's a one-off occurrence. Okay, it's this business. They're not very sophisticated. But in reality, the, this, is, this is the lay of the land. Design, like planning and execution are completely disjointed today. The second part is that every part of, every platform in this space, you know, having experience implementing or being on the implementation side of of this process, every platform is effectively this toolkit to help you solve the calculation of the actual payout. But I need to solve it for my business. And so I basically architect and I design the data pipelines based off of my needs as a customer. But every one of these instances is isolated. It's done in siloed fashion. In fact, I've worked with some organizations where different divisions within that company have this implementation of the same software, but it's different instances. And you have two teams in different parts of the organization or different geos, maybe different business units that are basically building rules where, yes, okay, in aggregate, there are different business rules and different data, et cetera. But at at a more granular level, you realize there's a lot of similarity in what you're doing and you couldn't copy paste from one instance to another in a streamlined way that was that was efficient and 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 enabled you to actually not replicate work, and so you know I left consulting thinking about this and being like, well, why can't we use the tools that we pay to do the strategic planning? And ultimately, it's because of this siloed and very repetitive and and rigid nature to the the way that we think about payouts, where if it takes you weeks to configure a plan, and you need a new instance to configure a test you know a test case every single time. You're not gonna set up 10 sandbox instances of these platforms and then configure 10 different plans that you're modeling to financially figure out which one you want to go with. It would take you months and months to do that. And so what what do you do? You keep design over here and you model it based off estimates and you're doing it in Excel to create your your ideal plan. And so I left actually thinking that I wasn't I left consulting. I wanted to go into tech. And that's when I, you know, I got reached out to by a customer I'd worked with. In the past and help them implement one of these platforms and so when they reached out asking for help because they were having issues and and, and problems with the calculations again business upstream data change upstream business rule change caused havoc on their date on their implementation and so all of a sudden you know bring back the person who helped us implement it because he knows the architecture of how we design this and so come back in help them re-architect get, get it set up get their teams you know, ready to to go again. And then a year later, lo and behold, same issue. They need help again. And that was when I, you know, I had the opportunity of, of pitching this idea of bringing strategy and execution together and ultimately removing the repetitiveness and the manual nature of building rules and ultimately commoditizing the rule building by taking the business context of the plan design and translating it automatically to the underlying rules. And so the you know this element of you know why did I start a software company? Well, I saw the software company to solve this problem. I think there's a massive gap in the market. I lived and breathed being in that role as a sales comp and and sales comp you know implementation partner, and I saw how painful it was for my customers. You know, one of the most defeating things was we we'd go through an implementation, and you know, at the, you know at the time back in you know between you know in 2012 2013. The ICM players were just kind of getting out of the woodworks, like, you know, for for the most part, like, exactly was less than a 10-year-old company at the time. And so, you know, in my mind, every one of these projects was mostly Greenfield. They were trying to implement these, you know, these these new platforms that were supposed to solve this problem. And you had these comp teams that you got very close with. You get very close to these people during an implementation project because it's long hours of hard work. And so the excitement of these implementations and everyone's super excited for this future state of comp. And then the rollout happens and it's a complete letdown. And I saw that too many times. Yeah. Too many times and too many failures to to not want to solve this problem. So I really thought you know, I built this started and built this company because I felt the pain so harshly myself.
0: On another episode of this season's podcast, I I talked to a consultant uh, who's been designing sales compensation plans for a number of years. And she describes a moment where the sales force, you know, a number of people broke out into tears. And my comment was, tears of joy? And the answer was no, definitely not type of things. It's great to hear, you know, the positive stories around sales compensation of where when you do things, you know, where the, the reps clearly can see a path, uh, to earning more money, you know, it goes well. I think when they when there's some confusion or the communication is not done well or they don't understand and they feel like maybe that their earning potentials have been limited in this year is where it doesn't go quite as well.
2: Yeah. Well and I think the key part to that is just data driven and I mean in everything I do, if there's any, you know, exceptions that come my way, whatever, I think that's also why I'm good at this role is mm-hmm. There's always the human element to it, but let's start with the data first. And so it's that clear communication that's backed by data of here are the facts. Here would be my recommendation based on the facts. Now let's add in the human component. Does that change at all? Or is there something oftentimes where I would go and where I would make the recommendation is that if there is something based on the human component that we need to do for this individual, it belongs outside of sales compensation.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So let's talk about that human component for a second. And I think that in my experience, you know, people try to get that experience in, in a variety of different ways, uh, whether it's through direct feedback from the reps through a survey, or maybe trying you know, to get that feedback as a proxy from the sales managers. And on you know, the far end of the spectrum, people going on sales calls or listening to you know, some sales meetings to get a feel for what the sales reps do you know, and then trying to, to figure out, you know, where do they have control or prominence over that sale? What did you do to get the the perspective of the rep or to make sure you understood the, the human component of, of the, what I always call the math problem that you're trying to solve?
2: Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think the number one thing that feeds into everything else, and this goes for my current role and for my previous roles is the sales VPs that I've supported have I've always had a great relationship with them. And it's always someone that they can come to me. I go to them at any point in time. And they are not only a partner, an ally, but most importantly, a resource. And just really setting that up as in when I reach out, there are current sales compensation, let's be honest. There are different areas of compensation where there is a conflict there, right? And they don't get along. And I think what I spent my initial time in this role and in my old role was I am your friend when I'm doing things it is for the benefit of the business and I'm truly curious when I'm reaching out and asking you so I think it's that curiosity and partnership with those sales leaders and then really through that they just propel me down different paths I mean in my role at Adobe just got really involved with our solution consultants especially uh supporting our product specialists we rolled out our new a new product first product that Adobe rolled out and I think about 20 years that wasn't acquisition. So being part of that was really interesting. So that's why they had me involved with their solution consultant. So I could really get that on the street feedback. So yes, I would join sales calls again, as I can, I do the same thing at Intermedia. Luckily, it's a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to get that information without having to sit in on those different calls. But again, it just gets back to that partnership with sales leadership and really having uh, an ally there.
0: So you have a book about the idea of what a CEO needs to know about sales compensation. And I think I've heard you talk a number of times about connecting strategy to sales compensation, corner office to front line. Balance this out against the idea that, as I talk to a lot of companies, we have sales comp planning, we have sales comp execution, and these two things maybe sit in different business functions at different levels in the hierarchy. How should people reconcile this idea that it applies from the front line to the corner office and then it sits in all these different places within the organization? Is there a way to
3: streamline it, make sense of it? Well, I think at its essence, what we're trying to do with the sales compensation program is we're trying to get a message across to the sales organization you know, at its essence, the sales compensation program is is a communications tool, right? So we want to say something to the sales organization, we want them to do something. And it'd be a whole lot easier just to pay everybody base salary and not go through all the machinations of how to design and, and manage sales compensation. But we do it because we're trying to get a message across. And that message is hopefully around the goals and objectives and the strategy of the business. Or it could be the business unit or of the team that, that that salesperson is is working for. So when I look at kind of simplifying what we're trying to accomplish, sales compensation is not about trying to make sure people earn money or trying to make sure that we're you know, doing certain you know, detailed things in the organization. Sales compensation is trying to make sure that we're connecting the strategy to the salesperson. So the part of the strategy that they can control, they are motivated to do that. So we want to connect strategy. And we also want to make sure that it's going to be something that's going to be motivational and exciting and, and it's going to drive behavior. So when I wrote the book, Justin, I, I actually wasn't interested in writing a sales compensation book because I thought, you know, there, there's several sales compensation books out there and there's some pretty good ones. But what I realized was missing was a couple things. One was there wasn't anything that really talked about how to make that strategic connection, hence the title of what your CEO needs to know is kind of tongue in cheek, right? It's really what you need to know about sales compensation or anybody needs to know. But we weren't a lot of companies weren't making that connection to the strategy. Um the other was as sales compensation books go, they're kind of boring, right? <laughs> so so you get into like 40 different sales compensation plan examples, or here's how the mechanics work, whatever. And what's the first thing an executive does with that book? They give it to their analyst, right? Here, here you read this. I'm not going to read a bunch of commission tables and stuff. So we needed something that actually talked to leaders, uh, leaders who are heads of sales operations, who are heads of compensation, who are heads of HR, who are heads of companies like presidents and CEOs. So we wanted to make something that was going to be accessible and, and talk to those leaders Not just through a bunch of numbers and tables, but through methodology and models that help you with how to think about sales compensation and how to solve the problem, not just like here's how a commission rate works. And one of the other things we did with the book was we wrote some interesting stories to kind of tie it all together, because stories are kind of at the core of our primal wiring, right? If I can tell a story about something, I can get that message across. So hopefully we created a book that actually helps people connect to that topic on a little bit more of a human level than just a technical level. Here's another question. So again, you've been involved in sales
0: compensation for a while. So I'm always interested because I think that the longer folks have been around sales compensation, the more we think about things, the same. How often do you think sales compensation plans should be reviewed?
4: I would say at least quarterly. Quarterly, cool. so, okay. Yes, so you want to also look for look for soft measures, yeah. So you don't want to look only for for hard measures like my revenue or my market share. Yeah. So you would also want to want to look at cancellations. Um, you want to look into. My, the backlog have i got enough in my pipeline are my processes working how is my forecast accuracy and these kind of things so just going by revenue how much is my revenue versus the compensation i paid that's one measure but it's not really meaningful if you don't look at all the other things yeah so there are, there are many many things that you that you can consider and you really should set them up in the beginning of the year so what do i what do i think is the measure for having a successful sales plan, a successful salesperson and a success for my company. So these are the th- three things that you want to look for.
0: No, I really like this idea of a quarterly review. When I asked the question, I was very much expecting the once a year answer because that's how I was you know, taught in the consulting world uh, 20 years ago that you designed it. And it was almost a fire and forget strategy and then at the end of the year, once again, you took this backwards look as to what had happened and then you made changes. But, you know, the opinion or thought process was that you had to let it run for some period of time to see if it was really changing anything. And now I think with the accessibility and the the amount of data that we have around, like you said, both hard measures, soft measures, that we can monitor it on a more frequent basis. And and see if things are working the way we wanted them to and, and maybe make changes if needed.
4: Yes, that's the point. If you measure during the year and you see this, is, this product sale is going downhill, why is it? Yeah, So you have the chance to implement measures that go against the trend and you can see like, oh, what do I need to push this product? Yeah, So is there something wrong with my product? Is, what's going on? So if you measure or if you check more regularly, and do a bit more deeper dive and um, you can work against the, the trend and um, yeah be more successful
0: yeah so at top of the show I mentioned you res- recently had a post on sales compensation communication I loved it it had nice one two three four you know a checklist of steps for, for people to follow and to me this is one of the areas where people do a ton of work on the design project. And then at the very end, they fall down and fail to to communicate it to the field force in an effective manner. What do you think are, what are some of the best tips you could share uh, for the folks listening today?
4: Yeah, there are a couple of things. So number one, Get everyone engaged, yeah, so you you should not never do it on your own, yeah, so you need to reach out to HR, you need to reach out to finance, you need to know know and understand the company strategies. You should always have a rollout plan yeah. so who is communicating what, to when, to whom, yeah, so that's very important because communication, everyone in a company should know what your company strategy is, not only the executive level yeah, so you need to everyone in the company would like to support your your strategy, but if they don't know it, how can they support it? And with the sales plan, what I usually did when i when I had my educational rounds with the sales folks, I would start always with this is what we want from you, and this is why we want it from you. Yeah. So I mean, there are some elements that you can't reveal, like if you were planning a huge merger or these kind of things, yeah, that has impact on your share price. But other than that, you can com- communicate anything. And I get a lot of um, feedback from the sales folks like, oh, that's the first time we ever understood a sales plan. And then they are more successful because then they know what is expected from them. Yeah. I also start my education rounds usually with, do you want to drive a Porsche or do you want to drive a Golf? <laughs> And then they don't normally look at me very confused, like because of they. Of course, they want to drive a Porsche, yeah. So it might both very good cars, yeah. But um, yeah, and then I then I explain to them what they need to do to drive.
0: Here's the steps to get there. What you yes. need to do.
4: Are the steps to get there, yeah.
0: One of the things I say a lot to people, probably you know, people that that have heard me or talked to me on the phone, probably at some point in time, heard me say that common practice is rarely best practice. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what people find around sales compensation when they do a quick Google search is common practice, right? Maybe it's a sales leader or a CEO saying, "Well, here's what I've seen, here's what's you know at different companies and people and people put, you know put a a halo or or expert bias around they're good at one thing they must be they must be knowledgeable about another thing but I've also seen you know talking to a lot of companies over the years, you see kind of some some repeating themes or patterns, and people want benchmarks They want to know what everybody else is up to. I think the longer I do this, the more I'm like, uh, why do you care what everybody else is up to uh, type of thing? But you mentioned, right, that you have some contrarian views. You like to challenge the status quo. What types of common practices uh, would you say maybe aren't best practices and you would give people different advice around?
5: Yeah, I would say there's probably two that immediately come to mind. One is figure out a way to make sure that you have a clear culture and interweave it wherever possible into your plan. And when I say plan, that is everything that that encircles that. Uh, and this is the approach that your, your 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 leadership takes it is in the plan document wherever possible like what is our purpose our mission and our, our our values that we want to act upon and and oh by the way we want our customers to feel on a daily basis from us it's that sort of thing and the guess, and the, the reality of that is it has to be different for every company so this is the contrarian a little bit of the contrarian perspective you can't take a job description and you can't take an old plan dust it off and say this will work because it needs to be distinct and unique to you and your strategy at this moment in time and after your strategy changes and after this year changes it's out the window you have to look at these things to address specific needs of your organization at that moment in time, because we all know the world changes, so we need to make sure that we keep up with it rather than a once one and done. Because that just it just doesn't it just doesn't play out that way. It doesn't it doesn't work in the long run. And then the other one is math matters more than benchmarking. And so in this case, and this is why I appreciate more of the small business approach is the uh, if you can't afford medium, or you can't afford best practice, then you just have to figure out another way to address what it is that you can offer uh, to bring on the right person who lines up with what it is that you're trying to accomplish for your organization. And because that is a reality, for most every organization that that, that is not the really big players, what you have to do is do something that is, almost necessarily not common, right? In order for you to stand out, which means you have to think creatively to address that. And kind of in this case, not exactly act the way that everybody else does. That's the part where I feel like, it's okay to be different. In fact, it's so much better to be distinct and to be different because you have to be, you can't, you don't have the dollars in many cases to be like the everybody else. And oh, by the way, as soon as you become vanilla, like everybody else, then what exactly do you stand for? And what exactly do you go and pursue? And how do you differentiate yourself in the marketplace? It's all of those things. It's, it's, uh, those have taken a little bit of a different approach entirely or a different stance, I think, is exactly what you want to do in order to stand out.
0: I think uh, I share a, a curiosity about the world with you. And I'm always you know, trying to, to read things, learn things. And while I was doing that, I ran across one of your papers where you explored the idea of a hot hand in sales. And this was absolutely fascinating to me. I think, uh, from from my perspective, this was something that I I heard a lot about as a kid, being a fan of the National Basketball Association here in the states, and hearing announcers talk about this idea. At one point in time, I thought that uh, you know contemporary wisdom was that it didn't really exist. It was a, a bias of some sort. But you decided to explore this idea in sales. And again, I'd love to hear kind of the how did you come upon this particular idea? And what did you find?
6: So, yeah, I'm glad you you picked that project out because it, it's probably my favorite project that I've ever worked on. Um It's certainly been the most difficult one um, and the, the longest project. You know, we, we, we had the original idea for that project. I still remember uh, a meeting in 2010 or 2011, I think, I, I, at the University of Houston at the, the Bauer School of Business there in the um, Stagler Institute of Sales Excellence, which is run by professor mike ahern who's um who's a good friend of mine and i i went over there on my sabbatical from when i was working in the uk i went over there uh, just to learn from him you know we learned the way he did things and learned the kind of research and one of the first few days we sat down and had a talk about things we're interested in we're both big sports fans and um he had a student working on intuition, which is Zach Hall, who's a professor at TCU now. An awesome project on intuition of salespeople, and and in talking about that, we came up, with, you know, these psychological phenomena that were interesting, and one of them was the was the hot hand, you know, and and because all of these psychologists work, they were working in that same kind of area, you know, the the idea of human biases and pattern recognition, and and hot hand interested us because it was exactly, as you say, something that had a really well-accepted psychological opinion, which was that it doesn't exist, that, it, that it's just a human bias. In other words, we're biased to see patterns in, in performance or, or in any kind of data sequence. Yet those patterns don't really represent anything different from the long-run average. And then you think about that in basketball or scoring or whatever. You think, well, if someone's got a long-run average percentage of field goals in basketball. It looks like they're in the hot hand, but but in reality, according to psychology, they're not really in a hot hand. They're just We're just seeing this short-run pattern, but it's not representative of any change in state. So you can't use that information to predict the likelihood of their of their next shot going in any more than you could use their overall long run field goal average, right? So if they shoot at 50%, the fact that you think they're in the hot hand doesn't mean they're more likely to shoot the next basket. That's, that's the theory that's, then that's what, your listeners might have heard of uh, Kahneman and Tversky, and Tversky published a very influential paper in the seventies about this, using free throw data and various other basketball studies to show, in in his mind, that this didn't exist. It was a bias, and and the more we talked about it, myself and and Mike, the more we thought that this just can't be true. In reality, that it just can't be a, it can't be correct to say that there's no such thing. Because when you think about it, that means that your kind of psychological state couldn't really have any influence on your transient performance, and, and we know that people who are more confident probably perform better. That, it certainly feels that way. So, so we thought to ourselves, you know, be both of us are pretty contrarian people. You know, we like we like disproving stuff and and showing the showing that there's a different way of looking at stuff, and and we said let's. Yeah, let's study that. And it and if to study that, what would we need? We'd need a, a big data set of of people's real calls, right, in sales. And and it so happened that that coincidentally at that time I had access to that. You know, I had a call center company in Europe that was very keen to do research with me, and they would agreed to give me their records of of their call centers for you know as long as I wanted. And we ended up using three months. Uh, which was uh, was a kind of campaign for a product. It was outbound calls. And we had all of the calls, probably, I forget the exact numbers now, and probably if someone reads the paper that they might find it totally wrong, but you have many thousands of calls for about, about 100 sales reps over three months. And we had every call, how long it lasted, what was the result, all of this CRM system data. And the thing that's changed between now and the, and the 70s is the statistical methods we have access to are way more sophisticated. And and actually, if you reanalyze some of that original data from the early studies, you do find the effect, the hot hand effect, because of the the way that we can do things now. We can remove biases. We can do things in a much more sophisticated way. And it turned out that we could find an effect that, that people did seem to change these states from being um, hot and being cold. You know, it's something we found which was which no one has really talked about. And the weird thing is it turned out that about the same time, quite a few other teams seemed to have this idea that, that we could show Hot Hand existed. Um, no one really looked at it in business, but there were a lot of other sports studies that came out. There's an awesome study on, um, yeah, basketball Uh, 10-pin bowling, we would call it 10-pin bowling in the UK, you would just call it bowling, I guess, and a bunch of other studies that showed how the mathematics of the original studies is is just not right, so that it's actually more likely that the hot hand does exist than doesn't exist. So... If we had got our paper accepted straight away, we would have been the first to show that. And, uh, you know, maybe we would have gotten a Nobel Prize, but I doubt it. But we we now would claim to be the first to show it in a, in a business context with a real-world job, as long as you don't count poker as a real-world job, which is debatable, I guess. Um, so that's the story. I mean, long-winded, I suppose. And we created an idea that you could actually because we we showed them in the paper we showed the mathematics of, of predicting whether somebody is in a hot hand or or not with with the equations and you can we showed a way that you could interpret well integrate those equations in a, a management information system where in a real time sense you could get an indication, if you're a manager of a call center, for example, of whether your salespeople were in a hot state or a cold state, and whether they're transitioning as well in real time. Um, not that challenging to do that if you're, if you're, a, I guess, a programmer to actually integrate that. And we haven't ever, we haven't tested anyone who's integrated it in. But what we did was we simulated the same call center. But if they had used our our management information system, they would have increased their sales by about 15% over the course of that three-month period, if I remember correctly the exact numbers. What type of
0: metrics have you put in place to to gauge the effectiveness of the plan?
7: So we have a, a new plan methodology this year. So we went from paying a kind of a Flat rate type way to a true OTE model, a big shift, right? There's folks who have been at Workiva for a very long time on the old model that you know aren't used, to aren't used to kind of the newer folks coming in that are used to on target earnings or an OTE model. End of the day, kind of the math's the same; it's just new vernacular. And what we wanted to pay attention to first was, you know, have we set that up correctly? So there was a lot of work that went into that to make sure we are paying. Uh, you know, we pride ourselves in paying. Above market average for you know great sellers, and we do that. And then we looked at what teams need support that can be handled by more you know junior selling or or you know reps uh, that we need to to fill that gap, kind of that middle ground. And so we've come to a really good balance uh, on the OTE. And so now the metrics are all about in the beginning just trying to gauge what is our difference in sales by product, by team, by region, and variable pump that goes along with that. So that's going to be baseline just from a financial accounting type responsibility. And then we have not had any shifts in trajectory of timing. But what we did about a year and a half ago is we changed how much we credit in the future. So in other words, if there's a future start date. So we honed in on that and we try to look at every deal. If it closed that month, the current month, prior month, or that following month, was there any change in behavior trajectory? when we made that change on to how far in advance you get credited. So we've done some of that. And then on back to the model change itself, we'll be looking at... We just sent out a rep scorecard. It has 26 competency metrics that ASDs are in charge of filling out. So they actually are filling out for their reps and giving their opinions about where there's coachable opportunities, uh, where there's selling behaviors that they think are, are coachable. Or is there something that they can help train others take away right good behaviors and then teach others and we try to work those in and that feedback into and contests as well because we believe that's the best way to to draw those out it's kind of like the audi example
0: no i just want to dig deeper into that so this you have this idea is very interesting to me you have a competency model you said about 26 different dimensions to it you sent it out to the sales managers to fill out for their people quick question do the are the individuals, do they have any input like from a 360 degree view or is it just top down kind of view of here's where I see this person up against this, against these competencies?
7: So it's the first line manager, director, if there is one, and then the VP. So they all came in. And so first line manager first took their pass and then the mm-hmm. other two layers added it in. We're at the point right now where that'll be shared back.
0: And then you're creating, you said some sort of incentives, spiffs, or something, around improvement to this competency model? Is that the individual level or some kind of aggregate? If you felt like everybody across the board, maybe you were low in negotiation, so you want to improve negotiation or is it at the individual or team level, I guess is that next question.
7: So what we're doing is we're trying to bucket into a theme per quarter. So as as you probably agree, right? You can't do 20 spiffs and you need to do things that are meaningful and change behavior and and do it for the long term. (laughs) I don't want 15 spiffs. What we wanted to do is do, you know, pull out where the good behaviors are and how can we convince others that they're meaningful activities to either go do or chase? Not everything necessarily means it's a spiff, but it might be a gate to get a spiff. So for example, one of our divisions is chasing a particular steal for a spiff in Q1. It's a specific competitor that came out of the gate and we want to focus on them. But the minimum to get the spiff is a gate around salesforce hygiene which as everybody has issues with that we we need to improve that in a couple areas so they have to have checks you know there's checks every friday to make sure that their opportunities achieve the salesforce hygiene and then there's a gate on our our pitch deck essentially right we get a new pitch deck every year every half that we want the reps to be versed on know know how to speak to it know how to give the pitch a lot of your tenured folks they don't care to do that you know they just they think they know it They sell, they get attainment. Great, I'm a great seller. Well, that's that's not true, right? Attainment isn't the only thing that gauges whether you're a good seller or not. So we have these gates to ensure that our most tenured sellers still stay engaged, but at the same time that they have opportunities to teach others. And we have ways around that and some steps around that.
0: The Sales Compensation Show was brought to you by Forma AI, the world's most advanced sales compensation solution. To learn more about how Forma AI makes sales comp more valuable to your business, visit forma.ai. Find us by searching for sales compensation in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. On behalf of the team here at Forma AI, thank you for listening and stay smart out there.